Hello, and welcome to The Great Collide, where we explore the intersection between politics and faith. I'm Leanne Noland. And I'm Jasmine Taylor. The new season of the R7 Neighbors podcast features archival interviews from Chicago Theological Seminary's Reverend Jesse Jackson Oral Archive Project, paired with com- contemporary voices from community, faith, and social justice movements based in Chicago. Jasmine, I found it a fascinating dive into an important era in the struggle for civil rights that most people just don't know. To learn more about that history, let's welcome Reverend Brian Smith, who is Director of Community Relations and Strategic Partnerships at Chicago Theological Seminary and the host of Our Seven Neighbors. Why was it important to create an oral history of the civil rights movement in Chicago? We've entered an interesting stage in our history and perhaps not an isolated point in our history, but one in which we see the rise of revisionist history, uh, a space where we find individuals that want to attempt to erase history, uh, particularly when it uh, is not um, flattering to uh, the uh, given population. And so I think it's very important on a number of fronts to record these histories and give people the opportunity to hear them from the individuals who created the histories themselves. Um, It's also important for me as a faith leader and as a minister to help to educate not only uh, the existing generations, but those to come, to give them some idea of how they can exercise their ministry in an effective way, those who want to be activists, those who want to make transformational change in the world, need to have an opportunity to understand how uh, those who came before us were successful. And they need to also understand some of their challenges. So for me, it's very important, both from a missional standpoint as a ministry leader and as one who has the opportunity to highlight uh, a tremendous history. Who were some of the key people that you interviewed for this project? There were a total of six primary interviews comprised of individuals who were either directly related to the early formation of the breadbasket movement or individuals who are heavily involved in uh, the civil rights movement and social justice action in the present day. So we interviewed uh, Reverend Dr. Jeanette Wilson who is currently a senior advisor to Reverend Jesse Jackson and a longtime uh, staff member at PUSH. Hermaine Hartman, who was actually uh, a young staff person working with uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson at the formation of Breadbasket. And then uh, Reverend Martin Deppey, who was one of the founding ministers who helped to uh, uh, galvanize the movement and actually take it into the pulpits across the Chicagoland area. And then lastly, uh, we have representation from the three individuals who were uh, selected by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King to be the actual uh, founders of the Chicago-based breadbasket movement. That includes uh, Gary Massoni, who is deceased, but uh, we actually interviewed his his, uh, uh, widow, uh, Betty Massoni, We interviewed David Wallace, who was one who was selected by Dr. King, and then, of course, Reverend Jesse Jackson. So uh, it was a a labor of love, uh, a wonderful opportunity for me to be able to hear firsthand 
their experiences at uh, launching a successful movement, which you probably know uh, evolved into uh, Rainbow Push. So Brian, you mentioned Operation Breadbasket and, and Martin Luther King. Many people don't know that Martin Luther King's first attempt to bring the civil rights movement to Chicago was a failure. So what happened and how did it lead to Operation Breadbasket? Well, first of all, the SELC had some success with uh, Breadbasket in other areas of the country. And uh, Dr. Martin Luther King wanted to actually move that that actual uh, activism to some of the northern cities where he discovered, as you you noted, that there was poverty and uh, gross inequality in the slums and the ghettos of the northern cities. And so he thought that this particular movement would be suitable for the northern cities in order to give them an opportunity to launch it even further. And he thought Chicago would be an excellent space in order to launch that movement just because of the social conditions. And of course, at the time, uh, you had Mayor Daley operating a powerful machine. And as you may note in Martin Deppie's interview, uh, Dr. King thought perhaps if he could be successful in Chicago with Daley, then he could uh, move the movement all across the country. So this was the economic justice wing of the SELC. They had achieved success with civil rights, but now they have an opportunity to bring economic parity along with the actual legislation that was in place. And uh, Chicago was also an excellent space to launch the movement because the large number of Southerners who had migrated from spaces uh, like the uh, Mississippi uh, areas and and um, uh, Alabama and and some of the southern states where you had a large conglomerate of folks who had moved north during the Great Migration. So the combination of uh, geography in terms of Chicago being a, a primary northern city and the fact that it was a, a large base for African Americans made it very suitable uh, in terms of a space uh, for him to launch this national movement. So let's talk for a minute about pastors. Why were some Black Chicago pastors opposed to the civil rights movement? I think that oftentimes, and we can see that in our present age, we become comfortable with limited success. So that if we are able to scrape up some of the crumbs from those who are in the ruling classes, we think that somehow we have arrived. And I think there were many African-American pastors who had just simply become comfortable, uh, comfortable living with the inequality, comfortable living with limited access to resources, uh, simply because they felt like they couldn't achieve uh, better opportunities elsewhere. So uh, when Dr. King came north, he challenged their assumptions about their positions in the space where they existed prior to his arrival. And so I think to a certain degree, there was a bit of animosity, perhaps even some jealousy that this Southern person is going to come into our jurisdiction and dictate to us how we are going to respond. Uh, additionally, you have to mention uh, Mayor Daley, who really had a, a stranglehold on Black politics he had what we call a machine where he had assigned many members uh, to different positions and he had the precincts 
set up so that uh, individuals receive some reward from uh, being uh, in allegiance to him. And um, people uh, don't uh, quickly give up the, the power that, that they have, even if it's limited power. And here you have Dr. King with this national presence uh, coming into a space where they believe that they had already arrived. And so uh, the fact is that most African-American pastors and congregations uh, resisted the movement. Most of them did not align themselves with Dr. Martin Luther King, and they felt as if he was an invader. And again, I think that is due to the fact that uh, we are satisfied too easily with limited comfort and limited resources. I think uh, it's an important uh, note that we should uh, look at uh, not opportunities, but we should look at possibilities. That's something I always share with my congregation. Make sure that you look at all that you can achieve and don't become comfortable and complacent with uh, minor achievements and minor opportunities that come your way. Clay Evans, a Black pastor in Chicago, tell us about what happened uh, when he tried to expand his church building. That was a fascinating story to hear. Uh, because of the leadership in Chicago, uh, Mayor Daley was clear about how he wanted to respond to Dr. King. And he wanted to make it clear to everyone in the city that if they found themselves involved with this rabble rouser, this champion of freedom, that he would make life difficult for them. And so Reverend Clay Evans uh, was readily involved in the movement as they came into the Chicagoland area. And uh, he was very closely aligned with Dr. King and uh, Reverend Jackson and those who were mobilizing to help improve the lives of uh, the African-Americans in, in, the, in the great North. And Mayor Daley basically sabotaged the development of his uh, new church and um, really used, I, I would consider, um, psychological warfare in order to um, uh, show the uh, um, lack of development as a means to demoralize the congregation and uh, uh, Pastor Clay Evans. So they were allowed to basically bring up the, the basic infrastructure of the church, but they weren't allowed to basically put up walls. And um, that development site sat there undeveloped for many years. And I'm just grateful that uh, that congregation and Reverend Clay Evans held on to the vision and they did not allow those tactics to discourage them. And they continued. They continued to fight. They continued to serve. And eventually, of course, you see the current structure that is in place at this time. But again, you can see how individuals in power uh, utilize any measures, any structures possible in order to try to prevent progress. And quite often, the threat of poverty, the threat of loss causes many of us to uh, cringe and, and to crawl and to lose our zeal to fight and to exist. And here you can see where uh, a mayor used the political structures, threatening uh, not only uh, Reverend Clay Evans, but other congregations, threatening them with uh, um, political violence, uh, telling them that, you know, if, if you participate in this movement, then we're going to make problems for you as far as your 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 cold enforcements and and um and and your ability to operate your space uh, 
and uh, they they were very direct and uh, I would say malicious in terms of trying to threaten and enforce the threats against uh, Black leaders that, that wanted to have a better life, uh, Black leaders that wanted to advocate on behalf of their own people. So you mentioned folks coming up from the South to go to Chicago, and it was a culture shock for many of the young civil rights workers who who made that move. And some of them had never really had much interaction with white people before. And so tell us about what these young people were like and what, what did they experience? Well, they, they did have interaction with white people, uh, unfortunately, uh, because of the brutality in the South. Um, their, their interactions were mainly negative. I think you may be speaking about the uh, specific experience of uh, Mrs. Jackson, who cited that she uh, had uh, been traumatized during her time as a young person in Florida, where uh, there was just very negative interactions. And of course, we're coming out of uh, the Jim Crow South. We're coming out of an age where people were literally uh, lynched and uh, threatened on a daily basis and uh, subjugated and uh, not far from the phase of their enslavement. So because of those prior negative experiences, they had every right to be suspicious uh, because they had not experienced anything else. And so uh, in that case, uh, it was a time of learning, a time of growing. Uh, but, But understand that even in the Northern cities, there was still discrimination. When African-Americans came to Chicago, they were forced to move into certain areas of the city while other people uh, went through their phases of white flight. Uh, I can recall my grandfather talking about his experiences bringing his family from the South to the North. And he said simply, uh, I came North to work. But when they came North, they were forced to live in ghettos, uh, a lot of African-Americans came through uh, the Bronzeville area, at least that's what they call it now. And if they tried to move outside of those boundaries, they were threatened with violence. Chicago was known as a space where there was great violence against African-Americans. And the boundaries shifted very slowly uh, along very strictly defined lines uh, on the south side of Chicago. And so I think... Um, the, the the shock was just a continuation uh, from the trauma that had been experienced, uh, not only in the past uh, in the South, but of course in the North. I also remember my grandmother sharing with me, uh, for instance, that going into downtown Chicago was a problem. I'll never forget the day we were walking through uh, what was uh, Marshall Fields at the time. It's now Macy's. And uh, I never understood why my grandmother seemed so happy to be there. I thought she just loved to shop. But uh, when I became a young man, she she said to me, you know, baby, they didn't allow Black folk to come into the stores. And even my mother talked about how uh, they would face sneers and, and folk would look at them as if they didn't belong. And so we have this history, even in the North, that we choose to hide and uh, even ignore. I found another report that showed in the state of Illinois, there were over 55 lynchings, which was a surprise to me. 
And um, uh, I think there's so much history that has been hidden or ignored, which is why I really wanted to engage in this project. I learned so much from it. And uh, I talked to adults who tell me all the time, you know, I didn't know that. I didn't realize that that happened. I didn't realize uh, the impact that Breadbasket made on uh, the, the uh, Chicagoland area and how it emerged and became a force for good and economic equity for those who lived in the North. So um, when, you, when, you, when you ask that question about uh, them being shocked, I think it was more so not so much being shocked uh, by the negativity, but being shocked perhaps that there were people that were, weren't so negative, uh, being shocked that people could actually be friendly and, and, um, and, and appreciate Black people, but not be Black themselves. And, and, and that's the powerful narrative that you see throughout all of these interviews. Uh, this movement was interracial. Uh, we had men and women engaged in activism, and uh, they worked together to try to achieve a higher uh, good in their community. And uh, I just celebrate the fact that they provide us with this model of how we can engage each other and uh, pursue opportunities for humanity. Uh, you don't have to be black to love black people or to love humanity. Uh, you don't have to be uh, of any hue, of any religion order, in order to have compassion. And that's one of the things I've been preaching lately with all of the unrest that we have in the world today. Uh, where is the humanity? Forget about religion, forget about uh, race, forget about even uh, the, 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 the history. Let's look at the fact that we're dealing with human beings and uh, we, we, we say that we serve a God that loves all and uh, has created all in God's image. And so I'm adamant about trying to find those avenues and those ways in which we can converge uh, on the basis of humanity. So one of the things you mentioned, this is near and dear to my heart, Brian. So this is called the Jesse Jackson Project. But many of the important people in Chicago's civil rights movement were women. So tell us about some of those women. And, and do you think they received the respect and credit that they deserved? Well, certainly historically, no. Um, and I'm so glad you mentioned that because we were very careful to make sure that we enlisted the voices of uh, powerful women. And uh, unfortunately, some of those uh, powerful women have passed away, but I knew uh, a little bit about them. And I was very excited to discover uh, their stories through some of the women that participated in the podcast. So you had Reverend Dr. Jeanette Wilson, who is still with PUSH and an, an individual who I greatly admire, one who I continue to support. And we do a lot of work together uh, in the present age. And then Hermaine Hartman who is uh, our local media mogul. And uh, these are powerful women with a, a great testimony. And so uh, it was a pleasure to hear their voices and to hear them lift up the women that have made such an incredible impact on the civil rights movement. And as you may have noticed, we, we did pair them with uh, contemporary voices and women who are doing very well in the present age. Uh, so... Again, your question was, who are the women? Reverend Willie Burrow. She is someone who I did have the opportunity to meet face to face and uh, to hear the stories about how powerful she was, 
how uh, she organized, how she convened, and how she did it with such a flair and with such energy, but also doing that work in the face of white feminism. Um, there was a discussion, as you may have heard in, in some of the, the podcasts, about the differences between the way Black women approached uh, uh, civil rights and, and, and uh, parity in their activism and white feminists. And there was a move to try to siphon off some of those women that were part of the breadbasket movement. And they said, no, uh, they were what we would call uh, womanists. Uh, and, and womanism is uh, what I would consider to be the entire consideration, the entire package of activism. The women had to consider their families. Uh, and, and let me be clear about that. The Black women who were involved had to consider the entire familial structure because that structure was under assault. Uh, there were structures that were put in place deliberately to try to uh, segment and divide Black families so that Black women didn't have the luxury of just focusing on their own bodies. Uh, and they didn't want to, but they wanted to consider the entire family unit because they realized how important that was to their survival. And I'm grateful for their witness. You may have heard uh, even Mrs. Jackson speak about it and how uh, she worked so hard to maintain that familial base. And the whole movement was comprised of families. And these were individuals who pulled together their talents, their time, and their resources as families. And literally, the children were with them as they were traveling throughout the country. And so I think uh, we have a, a huge lesson to learn from that. And that is, where will we be without our families? Where would we be without the cohesive units working together for good? We shouldn't ignore the women. We shouldn't ignore the men. We shouldn't ignore the children. We shouldn't ignore the seniors because that's how you effectively uh, divide a community. When you separate the mothers from the fathers, when you separate the children from their parents, when you separate the seniors from the young people, you have an opportunity now to divide that community. And I'm so grateful for a womanist uh, perspective that allows us to consider all. I'm wondering, how did all of your interviews affect you? Was there anything that was surprising to you? Um, anything that really hit home for you? Any kind of moment that was emotional for you? Yes, I've said this a number of times. Uh, number one, when I hear Mrs. Jackson's testimony about how she was trying to lift up her family and raise her children. She shared the story with me about how she was just trying to get milk for her babies while she was in the dorm. And that resonated with me because I uh, went to seminary as a second career. And I know the struggles of trying to do that, which God has called you to do, but trying to maintain a family. And so it resonated with me, even though I was an older student, I understood uh, the challenges and the difficulty of trying to do ministry uh, when you don't have all the resources that you need to do so. Uh, secondly, uh, when I heard uh, the testimonies, uh, specifically uh, with uh, Hermaine, as she spoke about uh, her pastor and the impact that her pastor had on her life, and I even shared with her, you know, that was a point of formation for you. And it challenged me as a pastor to look at the young people that I have under my care. And I'm wondering if I'm doing enough 
to give them that that point of formation that they need to grow into adulthood. And so now I'm very sensitive about what I say to them, uh, the assignments that I give them, and how I make myself available to them, particularly during our worship services. Quite often, um, uh, we have, uh, and I say we uh, broadly, we have uh, the tendency not to consider uh, the personhood of our young people. And uh, we have to change that and we have to be in a formation mindset at all times. What we say, what we do, and, and how we behave towards young people has a long lasting impact on them. And we can build up young people to become bright and bold leaders, or we can suppress their leadership capacity in the ways that we move around them. So uh, I'm uh, very conscious about trying to do things that encourage and affirm our young people, not just for the present age, but knowing uh, that there's a bright future that they uh, that, that God is trying to draw them into if we allow God to do so. Thank you, Brian, for sharing the rich history of the civil rights movement in Chicago. Everybody, be sure to download our Great Collide episodes. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. Leave us a review. And most importantly, tell your friends. Go to gcbm.org for all the links. The Great Collide is a production of the Greater Chicago Broadcast Ministries, a communications ministry of the Protestant, Orthodox, and Episcopal Churches of Greater Chicago in cooperation with the Council of Religious Leaders of Metropolitan Chicago. I'm Jasmine Taylor. And I'm Leanne Noland. Keep, Keep the, the faith. faith.